I'm Denzel Mohammed, and this is Jobmakers. In the last episode of Jobmakers, we began a very enlightening conversation with the Cato Institute's Alex Narastar, their Director of Immigration Studies and a regular immigration commentator on Fox and other news outlets. He's compiled a great booklet that you can download for free at cato.org or libertarianism.org called The Most Common Arguments Against Immigration and Why They're Wrong. Last time, Alex laid out the facts for us on immigrants and immigration in the U.S., countering many of the false narratives we've been fed all our lives and our ancestors fed. Facts like public safety has increased as immigration to the U.S. has increased. Immigrants aren't a lock for the Democratic Party. As immigration increased, so did American prosperity. This week, Alex hones in on a fact that research has consistently found that immigrants benefit Americans. And given his many years of speaking on this topic to anti-immigrant audiences, he gives us his insight on where anti-immigrant arguments come from, as you'll find out in this week's Jobmakers. Where does all this misinformation or disinformation come from? I spoke to Professor James Whitty from George Mason University's Institute of Immigration Research, and he made very clear that there's something called misinformation and there's something called disinformation. And you mentioned names like Mark Krikorian and Ann Coulter, who I would argue are possibly spreading disinformation, actively doing that. People are being fed certain messages in their minds, um, and, and they, they, they believe certain things as facts, for instance, the crime. Um, where does it come from? You've been talking to this audience for a long time. I think it comes from many different places. I think part of it is people focus on anecdotes and they don't focus on data. So they'll look at the newspaper and talk and see some horrible crime committed by somebody who's an immigrant. And they focus on that. They don't look at the data behind it. And we do that with everything, by the way. It's, it's a real problem. Uh, with with human uh, cognition and perception. It's a big systemic problem. Um, so I think that really sort of pollutes this debate uh, a lot. If people focus on anecdotes and not on, on those, those cases. I think some of it also comes from the way that our brains are hardwired. So, um, you know, our ancestors grew up, you know, in caves on the savannas of Africa and other places. And they evolved for that kind of environment where resources are fixed. You know, there's only so many buffalo running around that we can hunt to feed ourselves and our family. So in that kind of environment where resources are fixed, a new person coming in or a new group really does lead to a decrease in resources for everybody, really does make, you know, your group poor. And so you view outsiders with suspicion. You view new people with suspicion. It's a dangerous thing. But we live in a modern world where we have free markets, we have trade, we have capitalism. We have po- what's called positive-sum growth. Like People are creators. We create things. We're not just taking animals from the environment to eat or clothe ourselves. We're making goods and services from, from raw materials and from the ingenuity of the human brain. And so what's happened is our minds have just not evolved. Our economy has evolved faster than our minds have kept up. 
And as a result of that, we have a very primitive mindset where we just see people, you know, new people, uh, whether they're from abroad or whether they're births or, or whatnot, as taken away from us. And it's a primitive mindset. It's an incorrect mindset. And, and I think part of it is a lot of people who are anti-immigrant don't actually want to tell you why. Or they don't actually know why. They just don't like foreigners. And they look for a reason to justify why they don't like foreigners. And they go down this list. So one of the things that I'm worried about is they might say, I don't like immigrants because they take our jobs and lower our wages. And I respond to that. And then they go on to the next argument. Well, immigrants are going to take welfare. And I respond to that. And they go, well, they're going to be criminals and terrorists and whatever. I go down the list. And I worry that I'm not actually responding to the real reason. They're just giving me what they think are acceptable reasons. And so we're doing this whole long song and dance where we're not really responding to what the other person is saying or really thinking. And that's just a horrible, difficult way to talk about it. I mean, I suspect that a lot of the reason why people don't like immigrants is they just don't like foreigners. And it's really, really hard to say that without sounding, you know, like a xenophobe. And people don't want to sound like xenophobes, even people who don't like immigrants, right? And so it makes it impossible to have this discussion. So in a way, it's sort of like political correctness and patriotic correctness, which is like the right-wing variety, makes it very difficult to have an honest conversation about immigration. Uh, but I will say, I think there's, there's one thing that people don't talk about very much that I think matters a lot, and this is chaos. I think most people dislike and hate chaos. And they view immigration system, they view what happens on the border, they view all this stuff as chaos. And if people see chaos, they become immediately turned off. They hate it. Um, and they want to clamp down on whatever that chaotic thing is. You see it with the drug war, you see it with crime, you see it with everything else. And so as long as we have sort of a chaotic border, people are going to be really upset about immigration, even though the border has very little to do with the total immigration debate. It's a very small feature of it, but people sort of, it bleeds over and everything else. But the catch 22 is we can't get control of the border until we let more people in legally, but we can't let more people in legally until people think that there's no chaos on the border. With a focus on the border and the border only, you know, we know visa overstays, for instance, traditionally account for more unauthorized immigration in the U S um, there's no focus on that. Uh, legal immigration is a huge deal. People getting their green cards, being naturalized every year, entering our workforce. There's no focus on that. But focusing on the chaos is what has engendered this kind of disposition among people. And you brought up the idea of anecdotes versus data and research. Um, the border, individual crimes, alleged rape in Virginia, Virginia high school, things like that, those are the things that people remember. They don't remember the 13.7% of the U.S. population is foreign-born. They, they still believe in what they hear, that it's an invasion, an infestation. It's probably closer to 50%, yeah. doubting the census numbers because somehow the census may be biased. Um, we're up against a lot here, Alex. So I, I don't envy your work at all. Oh, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, what's interesting is um, the late economist uh, Alberto Alessina did a bunch of surveys in Europe and the United States. And one of the questions he asked, he just asked about some factual questions first. He was like, what percentage of the population is foreign born? What percentage are immigrants, et cetera? 
And then he asked them what they thought about immigration policy. And one of the things he found is that people who are very opposed to immigration policy, uh, immigration and immigrants just greatly exaggerate the percentage of the population that's foreign born. I mean, they will exaggerate by like a factor of three or four. So they'll think like the, the immigrant population is 60% when it's really like 14. And it's like, so people are not just like wrong and misperceiving things. They are like twisting their view of facts to fit that. I mean, there is no city in America where it's 60% foreign born, right? Like the largest is about 40, like just over 40% in Miami. And, and, and they, to be wrong by 50% upwards from that shows a level of like twisting reality to fit your partisan biases to an extent that is, is, is sort of like worrying. One of the difficulties in doing research on immigration, you know, you pointed out earlier that uh, they don't ask your immigration status when you go to court, uh, when, when you, you're picked up for something. Um, it's difficult to equate uh, to, to show that immigration causes certain things. For instance, economic revitalization of all the metro areas since the 60s, it's because immigrants moved in. Um, why is it so difficult as you as a researcher and so many others out there to parse out um, definitively about immigration? So part of the problem is there's a lot of things going on, right? So immigrants, just to give you an example, you know, they increase the supply side of the economy, you know, more workers increase supply side because that means more things can be made. There's more sort of like productive resources in the United States. But is that causing all the increase or is the demand for these workers, right? Demand for all these, you know, by, by an inherently growing U.S. economy, is the demand what's causing that? And then the immigrants are just going to the demand and then they're rising together. So like, what's causing that? It's just really hard to parse that. It's what economists call causal inference, which is trying to tease out what causally happens there. And what we do is we, we can tell this, we can definitely find that demand plays a big role, right? People are coming to the US because wages are high and they're much more productive here. But after the immigrants get here, they increase productivity. They increase the wages of native-born Americans because immigrants are not just workers. They are also consumers. They buy things. And by buying things, that's more customers. And having more customers means that American workers who are supplying these goods and services to new customers become more productive because the prices go up for these goods and services. And it's just like this miraculous new thing. Like what we see across economies around the world is more people means more productivity, more people making things, more people buying things. And the measure of your wealth is how many things and goods and services you have access to. It's not the number on your bank account, right? It's how many things you can get with that number in your bank account. And immigrants increase the supply of stuff dramatically. And that's something that we just, I think, lose sight of. Um, but the evidence is overwhelming. I mean, even George Borjas, who is the most skeptical of immigration, of the benefits in the United States, of any economist around who is published in the peer-reviewed work, even he admits using the evidence in the way that he does and, and sort of like and through his sort of analysis, immigrants increase the amount of production in the United States by somewhere around one quarter to one half of a percentage point of GDP. So you're talking about 60, you know, between like, 60 and 60 and 90 billion dollars a year and additional stuff made 
by native born Americans, just by immigrants being here, does not include at all the roughly 12 to 15 percent of GDP that immigrants produce in themselves. But they just make Americans more productive by being here. So issues like economics, labor, manufacturing, but then you get into also things like housing, housing values, you know, um, even crime. We look at the preponderance of evidence and we see that there's some sort of relation, Um, even though we can't say directly some immigration causes X or Y. And with the crime, immigration goes up, crime goes down. Um, Immigrants move into areas with low rent over a generation. They build up storefronts. They get uh, safer sidewalks. Um, they start bringing in customers to, for, to the nail salons, things like that. If you look to the places where immigrants go, you see this happening, right? You, you, you don't see immigrants going to places in West Virginia or in Eastern Kentucky or other places that are suffering. And, you know, part of the reason not going there is those places are doing poorly. But those pieces are also doing poorly because immigrants aren't going there. And they can't make these investments. They can't make, uh, you know, these investments in public safety or start new businesses. They're going to places, uh, you know, in cities and suburbs around the country that are growing well and making a positive contribution. Immigrants go where the jobs are. I mean, that's why suddenly immigrants are going to the Dakotas. They never went there before. Uh, They're going to Nebraska in in meatpacking plants. Uh, They're filling incredible voids. And we saw that a lot during the pandemic in terms of things like agriculture and food supply. Uh, immigrants are almost 50% of our agriculture workers. Like, what would we have done? How, what position would we have been in without that massive, disproportionately large, essential workforce? And in terms of agriculture and other areas, many of them are undocumented, right? Yeah, many of them are, uh, you know, unauthorized immigrants in a lot of these places. I mean, the most mobile immigrants in the U.S. economy that is willing to move from one area to another at the drop of a hat are uh, usually unauthorized or or unlawful immigrants in the United States. And that um, is something that's really, you know, underappreciated is that having this large mobile uh, workforce is is something that um, is is dramatic. I mean, dramatically positive. I mean, one of of the interesting is because of the pandemic, you know, many of us had to work remotely for a while during the pandemic. Uh, A lot of white collar um, uh, workers had to work remotely. And if it weren't for the large number of H-1B visa holders, you know, high-skilled temporary workers, many of whom worked in IT, uh, making that possible for us, it would have been much harder for a lot of sort of mid-range and and higher-income people to work remotely like they were able to. So imagine like the world, um, you know, without these hundreds of thousands of H-1B workers already working here in the United States, making IT services uh, more available to American firms. A lot of smaller businesses probably would have shut down entirely. A lot of big companies would have had a lot of trouble if not had to shut down entirely, or they would have had to outsource all these um, services to, to other countries around the world. And we didn't have to do that nearly as much because we had such a large, large pool of talented workers on the H-1B visa. Because we attract and we hopefully retain talent. I might I just add, we are recording this podcast over Zoom, and we have an, a high-skilled immigrant to thank for that. You're from Southern California. You live in D.C. now. And you sound pretty American to me. But you have your own sort of immigration story, don't you? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, we all do as mm-hmm. Americans. I mean, 
just about 100% of us have an ancestor in the last several centuries who came here from somewhere else. Um, my paternal grandparents uh, immigrated from Iran in the late 1940s. Um, my father was born here in uh, Wisconsin. So he's this like tall, dark, swarthy guy who looks Iranian, who talks with a slightly Oshkosh accent. It's kind of hilarious. Um, and he moved to LA to work in the film business. Um, my mother's family has been here. You know, the first one in their family came in the 16, late 1600s. But then some, um, you know, left, went to Canada, came back. Others came from Europe, you know, French Jews from Europe, Germans, you know, basically a whole mess of like Western European Jews and Protestants um, coming over at different times. Um, and then, you know, they both grew up in the Midwest and then moved to California to work in the film industry, met out here. And then, you know, my brother and I, you know, we're technically like, I guess, third generation because, you know, the stuff that we grew up in. But I mean, but I don't speak Farsi. You know, I've never been to Iran. I eat the food every once in a while, but frankly, I eat Italian food more. So, and Mexican food more, and Thai food more, and Chinese food more. So that's just like, you know, I'm really just like this American mutt with a really hard to pronounce last name. And basically, people view me as like ethnically ambiguous, which... You know, I'm fine. I guess I am ethnically ambiguous. That's being an American. And my labor on this issue, it's not a labor born of personal experience. Like I grew up around lots of immigrants in Southern California. That's the norm to me. It feels great. Um, um, but I don't have a personal experience or something troubling that happened to me. It's partly because I'm sort of a patriotic American. And this is something that really makes America different. And because of my background as a social scientist, because immigration is so fascinating and because immigration is something where if we're able to liberalize it in the United States, allow more legal immigrants to come in, it's worth tens of trillions of dollars to our economy and the world. That plus the access to Thai food and Mexican food oh. and Italian food and Chinese food, yeah. which we are so lucky to have in the U.S. because of immigration. We take for granted all these things that we're afforded that people in other countries aren't. And we yeah. have this this buffet, this smorgasbord of things to choose from every single day because that's what immigration gave us. So people can download uh, the most common arguments against immigration and why they're wrong. It's a really beautiful read. It's very visual. Nothing is complexly stated. Um, it's free to download. You can get it at libertarianism.org and also on at the Cato Institute's website. Uh, any last comments about um, this particular project? So this, you know, this project is the combination of over a decade of my work and research on this, you know, bringing together um, tens of thousands of different pages of research written by other scholars and doing original research myself. So if you want to see the highlights of what I've learned on this topic for a long career with only spending maybe 20 minutes of reading, this is the thing for you to get. I highly recommend it. Um, so please, you know, check it out, download it. And if you have any questions or other follow-up, send me an email. You can find my email on Cato's website at cato.org. And soon I'm going to be talking to one of your colleagues, Johan Norberg, the author of Open, The History of Human Progress, and which I think we'll explore some of these themes further. Alex Narasta, thank you so much for joining us in JobMakers.
Thanks a lot for having me. It was a real pleasure. Jobmakers is a weekly podcast about immigrant contributions, issues, and research produced by Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston, and the Immigrant Learning Center in Malden, Massachusetts, a not-for-profit that gives immigrants a voice. Got comments, questions, know someone we should talk to? Email Denzil, that's D-E-N-Z-I-L, at jobmakerspodcast.org. Thanks for joining us for this week's revealing discussion on how immigrants benefit all of us. Next Thursday at noon, we'll meet one of those immigrants, Carlos Castro. His businesses in Virginia have employed hundreds of people over decades, a far cry from his humble beginnings in El Salvador, where there were no such opportunities, as you learn in the next Jobmakers podcast.